our vision at Iron City is to make maturing and multiplying disciples to the ends of the earth. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I know that's what gets Aaron out of bed in the morning. That's what gets our pastors out of bed in the morning. It's so important to me that that is what I have resolved to commit for the rest of my life to do. I've given my life for this purpose. I'm convinced that the most important thing about my life is that I am able to present my family and I am able to present my church to the Lord on the day of judgment as pure and as mature as possible. I'm convinced that if we will resolve by the Lord's grace and by the Lord's strength to commit ourselves to maturing in the faith and to multiplying and reinvesting that faith, that the Lord will see fit to bless us remarkably. I'm convinced that as we stand together in the gospel, as we press on together in the gospel, that we can literally change the world together by changing people at the same time. That doesn't matter about the size of the church. It doesn't matter about the location of the church. It doesn't matter about the prosperity of the church. That if we will commit ourselves to doing this work and to this vision, that we can literally be agents of change to the ends of the earth. And just as convinced as I am of that, I'm equally as convinced that the enemy... That Satan himself has declared war against our vision. I'm convinced that Satan and all of his demonic forces and all of his demonic power in the cosmic battle that is taking place has focused his guns on this body, on these brothers and sisters that by all means necessary he might put that vision to death. And so what I want to do over uh, the course of the next 40 or 45 minutes, and then uh, over the next five or six weeks, I want us to unpack that. I want us to prepare ourselves for battle. I want us to prepare our hearts and put ourselves in a position where we can be victorious for the good of our families and the good of our church and the good of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This is the most prominent passage on spiritual warfare that we have in all of the New Testament. It comes at the end of a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. So if you would stand with me as we prepare to read together Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 10 together. God's word reads, finally be strong in the Lord. Your translation, which I think may be actually a little strong, uh, more accurate, would be, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having Fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. As we come into Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is beginning to unpack for us the nature of the war that we are all in. And I want you to understand that if you are a believer in Christ, even if you are not a believer in Christ, you are in the midst of this war. There is a war going on for your soul. There is a war going on for your family. There is a war going on for your spiritual well-being. And so as Paul begins to unpack this this war, this cosmic battle for us, he makes sure that we know the nature of our enemy. That we make, he makes sure that we understand who our enemy is. You'll even remember in the video with Glenn talking, he said one of the most important things is that you understand your enemy. That you understand that what you might face as you go into battle. And so Paul preparing us as believers is doing just that. The first thing that he tells us about our enemy is that our enemy is spiritual. This is a spiritual enemy. You'll notice with me in verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is that our battle is not against human beings. Our battle is not against politicians. Our battle is not against Muslims. Our battle is not against our atheistic neighbor. Our battle is not against the worldly people that we see all around us. Our battle is not with our wife or with our husband. Our battle is not with our children. Our battle is not with our preacher. Our battle is not with our president. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle, our enemy is a spiritual enemy. Now that doesn't mean that that doesn't make itself known in the physical world though, does it? That in the midst of this battle, there will be manifestations of this spiritual war. There will be clear evidences of this spiritual enemy in the midst of this physical world. Sometimes we'll get sick. We see that happen in Job, right? Sometimes we'll face loss. We see that throughout the scriptures. Again, in Job, it seems to be particularly obvious. We'll face hardship. We may lose our livelihood. We may may come against hardship as a a family. We may come against financial difficulty. We may come against persecution within our culture. Persecution as we go to the nations. But at the end of the day, the battle is not against those people that we see. At the end of the day, the battle that we are fighting is not a material battle. The battle is a cosmic one. Happening in the spiritual forces of darkness that you cannot see. In a world that is beyond your reach and beyond your vision. That the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2 says, is blind to. That behind the scenes, behind the curtain, beneath 
the surface, always in the background, there is a war that is raging. And you understand that the reason that the enemy has come against you, the reason that the devil himself and all of his demonic, his demonic army has come against you is because you are a spiritual traitor guilty of cosmic treason. You understand that? Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, we didn't start, this book doesn't start in chapter 6, right? Paul's been building cases for this the whole time. He's been setting us up to understand Ephesians chapter 6 throughout the whole of the letter to the Ephesians. So if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, what does it say? It uses very similar language. It says, you, in verse 3, used to follow after the prince of the air. That is, that you used to follow after the ruler of this world. You used to be in an alliance with the devil. That when you were living for yourself, and you were doing things for yourself, and you were trying to be good enough before God on your own, when you were doing what you wanted to do, whatever felt right, whatever seemed right, whatever seemed wise, when you were living like that, that you were literally living in allegiance with the devil himself. This is why Romans 5 tells us that we were enemies of God. We were enemies of God because we were friends of Satan. We were enemies of God because we had declared our rebellion against him and at the same time simultaneously aligned ourselves with those who want God's very destruction. But then what happened? What happened? God interrupted all of that, right? God, God interrupted all of that. If you were a believer in Christ Jesus, then the Spirit of God came into your life in the midst of your treason against God, in the midst of your blasphemy against God. And the Spirit of God revealed and opened up your eyes to see your own sinfulness and to see your own wickedness and called you out of that life and into abundant life, eternal life. In other words, what the, what, what the Lord did through the Spirit is he called you to change your allegiance. He called you not to align yourself with the enemy, but to align yourself with the Lord himself. He, he called you out of the darkness to come into the light. And as you come into the light, the darkness declares war on you. See, the enemy is against you because you are for God. The enemy is, is against you because you are for God. To the enemy, you are as Benedict Arnold was to the revolutionaries. To the enemy, you are as Brutus was to Julius Caesar. You are a traitor, and he wants nothing more than your total, ultimate, and final destruction. But our enemy is not just spiritual, Paul teaches us. Our enemy is also powerful powerful. Listen to the words that he uses. He uses words like ruler, authority, cosmic power, spiritual forces. Like if you're describing your enemy that way, that's a scary dude, right? Like you're, you're going up against an enemy that's described by the Lord himself as being a cosmic power, like a power that is so strong that it transcends what we can see here in the physical world all the way to the edges of the cosmos. Like, that's powerful. That God himself is recognizing him as having an authority here on earth. Jesus recognizes this in Matthew chapter 4, understanding that the earth was Satan's to give to him, right? 
that he is the ruler of the earth. He is a cosmic power. He is capable of bringing great chaos and great destruction to those who are sinners and weak by nature until the Lord comes back. But, you know, I don't know that that's how we often think of him. I don't think that's how we think of him. I think that Satan probably is the most brilliant marketer and public relations expert that's ever existed. He has convinced us, rather than being the cosmic power Paul describes, that he is instead a clumsy cartoon with a pitchfork, a pointed tail, and horns. He has convinced us that he is just always in for a good time with some little mischievous plot that God always manages to come in and spoil his good time. He has convinced us that he is nothing more than, than some little cartoon that we can, we can dismiss and we can move past. We really don't have to worry about it all that much. After all, isn't the resurrection there? Is it, right? Like, isn't God? He's convinced us of all of that. But in John chapter 14, Jesus calls him the king of the world. The king of the world. Think about that. In, in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, he is described as a roaring lion pacing to and fro across the earth, seeking those whom he may devour. And do you know who Peter was writing that to? Christians. Christians are not exempt from the suffering brought on by the enemy. As a matter of fact, the whole letter of 1 Peter can largely be summed up in that it may be God's will that you suffer, but you will ultimately be delivered. The picture there is in the Roman Colosseum. See, in the Roman Colosseum in Peter's day, they would gather and tens of thousands of people would come and they would sit in this great stadium in antiquity. And they would have a lion. The lion would go back and forth across the floor of the Colosseum. And they would take these poor saps, often Christians who were in the midst of persecution. And they would throw this person into the arena with the lion just so that they could watch the lion devour him for sport and for show. And Peter is calling our attention and saying, this is who the enemy is. Church, you would do well not to diminish and to domesticate our enemy. You would do well not to dismiss him as a clumsy cartoon, but to understand that he is more like a CIA operative, lethal, living beneath the surface of your life, seeking to kill and destroy you and the things that you love. Not only is our enemy spiritual, not only is our enemy, enemy powerful, but our enemy is methodical. Methodical. I think often when we think of the devil, we think of him as kind of just shooting from the hip and hoping he hits something. We think again of, again of him as like this clumsy cartoon, but that is not the picture at all. Verse 13 says, or verse 12, I'm sorry, no, verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I want you to circle the word schemes in your Bible. The schemes of the devil. You know what a scheme is? A scheme is a, is a, a plot. The, a scheme is a plan. The devil is not the city boy that you hand the, the machine gun to and just say spray and hopefully you hit something. No, the devil is a sniper hanging out. He's a marksman. 
He's the, he's the one that, that orchestrates drone strikes and special operations, smart bombs. The devil is one that is, is making a, a cunning plan and a cunning plot to the ultimate end of your demise. The, the word scheme there is, is pointing us to the methodical nature of, of the enemy's uh, deceptions toward you. The devil, Satan, he is the ultimate deceiver. And so what he wants to do is he wants to come into your life with just the right deception at just the right time in just the right way so that the perfect storm is created to undermine your faith if you're a Christian, to keep you away from faith if you're not a Christian, so that you might be totally rendered powerless. I think two of the main ways I've seen uh, the enemy deceive in, in my ministry is, number one, he tends to make, he, he tends to make sin very attractive. He tends to make sin attractive. If sin stunk, and sin didn't seem like fun, and sin didn't seem like a gain, none of us would want sin. But the reason that we sin is that the enemy is an expert at making the wrong thing look like the right thing. He is an expert at making the right thing seem like the unreasonable thing. He is an expert at making you convinced that you need this particular sin in your life if you're going to be satisfied and happy and fulfilled. You see, no man in a happy marriage ends, intends to have an affair until she walks in and sin looks attractive. No teenager that's hot with for God goes off to college intending to go off the deep end until they get there and sin looks like fun. No mom or dad intends to lead their family away from the Lord and away from the church. Now they end up there by accident because sin and unfaithfulness seem fun. It seems attractive. The enemy deceives us in his methodical way, drawing us in toward unfaithfulness, drawing us in toward sin, that we might sin and enjoy it. Brothers and sisters, you are a sinner, and when you sin, it will feel good. It does not make it right. That does not mean it will not destroy you. There are lots of drugs and poisons that you can take that will taste good in the beginning and kill you in the end. The other deception I've seen is that not only does he make sin look good, but he makes, he makes it so that, uh, that we believe that our enemy is flesh and blood. He makes it so he convinces us that our enemy are the politicians that we see. He convinces us that our enemy are the other false religions that we see. He convinces us that our enemies are perhaps one another. He convinces us that our war is a flesh, and blood, a flesh and blood war so that when we don't reach the approval of man or match the judgment of man and we think that they think lowly of us or don't think highly of us, that it crushes us with anxiety and insecurity. He convinces us that if our church isn't doing what we want and isn't fulfilling our needs, our wants, camouflaged as needs, then we might as well just split away and divide from one another, creating divisions in his church. He convinces us that not only is sin attractive, but sin is physical. It can be seen. And as a result, he causes us to focus on the wrong battle and the wrong war at the wrong time, rendering us powerless in the cosmic battle that's happening. 
See, I use the word methodical throughout this on purpose. The word that we get our word methodical from is the Greek word that's used here and translated as schemes in our text. You see, I think a lot of times we know that God has a plan for us. We know that God has a plan for our church, that maybe it's to make maturing and multiplying disciples to the ends of the earth. We know that God has a plan for our marriage to maybe make the gospel known and to do things for us for the glory of God. We know that God has a, has a plan for, for our kids and we want to raise our kids to embrace the plan of God and embrace the will of God and to live it out in their lives. But I don't much think that we understand that Satan has a plan for us too. The enemy has a plan for Iron City Baptist Church. The enemy has a plan for your children. The enemy has a plan for your marriage. The enemy has a plan for you. The enemy is plotting. He is methodically scheming to ultimately undermine the plan of God in your life. We want to mature disciples. He wants to keep them superficial and surface level. We want to love one another and be united in unity with each other. And he wants to turn us on one another. We want to go out and to reach the nations for the glory of God. And he wants to provoke us towards self-centeredness and inner inwardness. So we have our vision. We have the Lord's vision. And he has a vision for us too. And he has declared war on ours. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, to whose, will, to whose will will we submit? To whose plan will we follow? Whose, fa- whose plan in your, for your family will you submit to? Whose plan for your children will you submit to? Whose plan for our church will you follow? Will we follow the vision of the Lord or will we follow the vision of the enemy? Bone chilling to consider our enemy, isn't it? To consider one so spiritual, so, so powerful, to consider one so methodical is a, is a, is a bone-chilling thought for a, a weak man. When we think about it, I, I think about it like we're like Swaziland. We're like this third world country that's smaller than the state of Alabama taking on the United States with their nuclear arsenal. That's how it feels, isn't it? And we can feel defeated. And we can feel beaten down, and we can feel powerless and impotent and all of those things until we remember who our ally is. Until we remember with whom we are aligned and to whom we have pledged our allegiance and to whom has pledged his allegiance to us. When we remember that, when we remember that, then this bone-chilling cosmic war is put down into its proper perspective. I told you earlier that you can't understand Ephesians 6 unless you understand the first five chapters of Ephesians. I want you to turn with me to chapter 1. Turn with me to chapter 1. I'm just going to read two verses from chapter 1. I want you to see this. And, I, and when we read it, especially when we get into verse 21, I want you to see how similar the language is. 
Remember, Paul assumes that you know this when you get to chapter 6. He assumes that you're already there, okay? So let's read chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Listen to this. Far above. Would you underline that? We're fixing to have revival. Somebody underline far above in their Bible. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. Do you hear the same language? The enemy is powerful. The enemy is methodical. The enemy is deceptive. The enemy is cunning. The enemy is coming after you, but far above him. Far above him is the Lord Jesus seated on his throne. And he is so far above him that Matthew 10 says the demons come to him and beg him not to torment them. He is so far above him that Revelation tells us that he's going to throw them in the lake of fire. They come and they flex their muscle and they show their teeth. But he is far above every single one of them so that they will fall on their faces and declare him as. Lord we ain't finished yet turn with me now to Luke chapter 10 turn with me to Luke chapter 10 I want you to see the role that we play in this thing now Luke chapter 10 it's to your left just a few books we're going to look at verses 17 through 20 alright now, let me give you just a, a, one sentence of context here. Jesus has sent out his disciples two by two, in twos, to go out as sheep among the wolves to reach the world, to, to, to communicate the message that the Messiah has come, all right? Now, listen to what happened while they were gone. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you hear that, church? Do you hear that in church? We are in a cosmic battle. The enemy is fearsome. The enemy is smart. The enemy wants to destroy you, but Christ Jesus, who is far above the enemy, transcending the enemy, the enemy is at the beck and call of Christ, and Christ Jesus says, I have given you the authority, alluding back to the Garden of Eden, you're going to walk on the heads of the serpents. You can step across them, and the serpent can strike, and he can try to take you out, he can try to take out your kids, he can try to take out your church, but you, you go in my authority, he cannot harm you. We feel like we're in a David versus Goliath war here, don't we? We feel like we're in a David versus Goliath war. We go into this thing, and man, it looks like we have no prayer. It looks like the giant is going to slay us. But you see, David is only the underdog if you don't believe in God. See, God had assured David, you're going to face the giant, but I will be your deliverer. 
You're going to face the one that is mightier than you. But I am mightier than he. I will deliver you. You're going to have a piece of leather and some rocks. And I am going to take down the giant. Brothers and sisters, let us be David. Because the Lord is our deliverer. The Lord will slay our enemy. The Lord will deliver us in this battle and in this war. We will be triumphant in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he says, put on the armor of God. Not your armor. Remember what happened when David tried to put on Saul's armor? It didn't fit. Don't put on the world's armor. Don't put on the armor of men. Don't go try to read self-help books and psychology and self-esteem talks. Put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. See, the things that are talked about in Ephesians 6 aren't new to Ephesians 6. In Isaiah, he talks about the helmet of his salvation, the Lord's. He talks about his breastplate of righteousness. He talks about his sandals of readiness. We don't stand there shielded by the, by the schemes of man. We don't stand there shielded by the armor of man. We stand there in the armor of God because in the New Testament, what's his is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, all this is about preparation. A lot of this is about preparation. When does a soldier put on his armor? Before the battle, right? The soldiers, Paul was in a prison at this time, probably watching Roman centurions pace back and forth, wearing all of their armor every single day. If you would have been in Rome that day, walking through the streets would have been perfectly adorned soldiers ready for battle because a soldier always lives understanding the imminence of war. A soldier lives always understanding that today may be the day that I get the call. Today may be the day that my training gets implemented. Today may be the day that I'm in the foxhole with my comrades. Today may be the day that my life is asked of me. And so a soldier lives with an urgency. A soldier lives with an awareness of the imminency of war. And so he takes up his armor day in and day out, not sure if he will need it or not. And Paul tells us that we are to put on this armor that we may withstand the evil day. Let me tell you how I understand the evil day to be interpreted. I, I understand it a lot like Matthew chapter 4. We live in this, in this world, and man, every day we face temptation, Right? Every day you're going to face some little attempt on you from, from the enemy, and those things are not to be minimized. But I think when Paul talks about evil day, he is alluding back to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. That Jesus certainly in, encountered temptation before then, and we know that he encountered temptation after then, but in the wilderness was a, a time of particularly aggressive temptation and threat. In our lives, those days will come. In our lives, those seasons will come. We will face temptation day in and day out. We will face the threat of the enemy day in and day out. But there will come evil days in our life in which the enemy is particularly aggressive against us. In which the, the enemy will particularly work toward our destruction and the destruction of what God is doing through us. And church family, I am convinced that the Lord has shown me that that's what 2016 was for the people of Iron City Baptist Church. An evil day. I began 2016 personally with a breathtaking anxiety that I still don't, can't explain 
or understand. Couldn't breathe, felt like I was suffocating, would tell Megan, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know, what, I'd never struggled that before. We go on through 2016, man. We have, to, we have to bury sweet little Avery. We have to bury a stalwart in our church like Bobby. Behind the scenes, you may not know this, but we've got, we got marriages that are just being invaded by the enemy. Coming after them. We've got various other things happening in the lives of our pastors. Other things happening in the lives of our, of our members that, man, you just can't even explain them. They don't make sense. I was diagnosed with a, an illness that they can't diagnose. The doctors still, every time I go, they always give me the same thing. Oh, we went over the pathology again. We went over all the situation again. Like We literally don't have any idea why this happened to you. We have no reason to understand why you have experienced this at this time in your life and why you had to go through all that. We have, we have no explanation. Well, I do. It was an evil day. The enemy tried to undermine the work of Iron City Baptist Church. The enemy tried to undermine our ministry. The enemy tried to undermine our vision. But brothers and sisters, look around. We're still standing. We're still standing. Because our Lord, our ally is far above him. He is far above him. Look around. We're still standing. But brothers and sisters, let us be warned. The evil day is coming again. The evil day is coming again. The drought always returns. Let us prepare ourselves. Let us stand in the strength of the Lord. Let us take on the armor of the Lord by drawing near to the Lord himself. Let us go close to the Lord and close to one another that when the evil day comes, we might stand firm, brothers and sisters. Let there be no casualties in this body. There are going to be casualties of war or prisoners of war from this body. Look around at the faithfulness of the Lord. Look around at the steadfastness of the Lord and stand firm as we press on into the future. The Lord has seen us through and the Lord will see us through. Stand firm in the Lord, Iron City. There's a togetherness that comes through all of this. There's three basic imperatives given throughout the text. Be strengthened, put on, stand firm. Be strengthened in the might of the Lord. Put on the armor of the Lord. Stand firm in the strength of the Lord. Now, there, there's different iterations of that, but they all basically can be summarized into those three imperatives. But what you can't see in your English Bible is that all of those are plural imperatives. In other words, the, we understand, you understand an imperative that you, you say, go do this, and the you is implied, like you go do this, right? But a plural imperative is you all go do this. Throughout Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is giving a plural imperative to a single local church. And he's saying, you all be strengthened together. You all put on the armor of the Lord together. You all stand firm together. You all come together in this thing and press on in the strength of the Lord, by the grace of the Lord, for the good of the Lord. Stand firm together. You all band together as a band of brothers and press on for my glory and I will press on for your good. He says, put on the, or take up the, the shield of faith, extinguishing the, the flaming darts of the evil one. The, the picture of the shield there 
is, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a door. It's about the size of a door. And they would take it and they would, they would cover the shield in leather. And if they were going to fight against an enemy that they knew would be perhaps firing flaming arrows at them, that these, they'd have these arrows that would be dipped in pitch and they would light them on fire and they would shoot them and they could just cause chaos and havoc on the enemy. And so if, the, if, the, if a Roman legion believed that they were going against such an enemy as that, what they would do is they would take those leather-wrapped shields and they would soak them in water and they would pull them up. And if a flaming arrow hit the soaking wet leather, it would extinguish the arrow and put it out. But in the legion, what they would do is that as they went to face their, arm, face their enemy, they would all get and they would, they would join very tightly together. And those in the front lines would, would take their shields and they would put them end to end to end so that there was a, a, a full wall of shields that the enemy could see. Then those that were back would, would get so close together that they could take their shield and they would lift them over their heads and they would put them end to end to end to end. And the army was rendered invulnerable. So the enemy would, would take and they would fire their flaming arrows and the arrows would come attempting to rain down on the army and they would hit those leather, water-soaked leather shields and they would all be put out. And as they were put out, they would be ready to take on the sword and go and slay their enemy. That is the posture of the church in this war. We come together tightly. We take responsibility for our brother. We take responsibility, as Glenn said, for ourselves. We take responsibility for the role that we are to take. And we come together so closely that we can bring the shield of our faith end to end to end. So that you can't even see the crack of daylight in between them. We hold them over our head. And when the marksman that is our enemy comes after us, he finds us invulnerable in the Lord. I read recently an article on the Gospel Coalition. If you don't read the Gospel Coalition, I would commend it to you. There, you can search things. It's a very helpful resource to Christians in understanding the world. But I read an article about a missionary couple that went to a, a post-communist nation that was a, uh, an atheistic nation. And so they, they went in there, and their, their intent was to plant a church and to reach the people of this nation. And so they go in, and, and it's just strange things begin to happen to their family car would break, the things would, they, they would have uh, rocks thrown through their windows, they would have, uh, they would just face unique opposite from people that didn't even know what they were trying to do or, or, or what they were facing. But as I read, they said that the, the, the strangeness kind of hit a climax. They had a two-year-old son. And they son began to have night terrors and just horrible nightmares. And so he would wake up screaming in the middle of the night and he couldn't sleep. And he, he began to be afraid to go into his bedroom. And so you know, as a, a mom and dad, like when that's happening, ain't nobody sleeping. And they're worn out and exhausted and weary. And they're, they're just thinking like, we're ready to go home. They began to ask the little boy about what he was seeing. And they said, and he began to describe something that he had no context for. He had not, um, he had not, he had, it wasn't like the little boy was seeing this little grizzly bear chasing after him that he'd seen in a cartoon. He began to describe to them a woman with long claws, scantily clad, that was coming with sharp teeth wanting to destroy him. The boy described, described her as a demon. And so they got all of their church together. 
And they put their little boy to bed and they told him, son, we want you to sleep and we're going to stay in here and we're going to pray for you. And she said the place that they ended up gathering was right beneath his window. And they, they sat there all the way through the night. And all through the night, the whole church gathered at that window. And they prayed together that the Lord would give rest to that little boy. And the next morning, the little boy woke up. And the mom said, well, how did you, how did you sleep? And he said, I slept, I slept great. She said, so, so the demon didn't come back? He said, oh, no, she came back. But she was at the window, and she couldn't get in. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, demons are coming to our window. The enemy is coming to our house. Will we be found there, united in prayer together? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you because you are the one that is far above what we have seen. You are the one that is far greater than the enemy that we face. You are the one in whose strength we are able to stand. You are the one in whose victory we are able to declare. Lord, we praise your name for the steadfastness of your hand over your people. We praise your name, Lord, by no other explanation than your grace that we are right here on this day together. We ask you, Lord, to continue to supply, to continue to work. I pray right now, Lord, for families facing, facing spiritual battles and spiritual wars, that on this day you would resolve them by your grace to stand firm. I pray, Father, wherever there is a, a crack of division in our church, that, Lord, you would put your hand over and, and bring us shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, that we might be impervious to the attacks of our enemy. Lord, use us for something we aren't capable of. Use us to declare your glory in a way that we cannot explain. Raise up disciples here, Lord. Raise up missionaries here. Raise up pastors here. Raise up men and women that will give their lives for the gospel here. Raise them up, Lord. Raise up young men and young women, little boys and little girls. Take seasoned saints to the ends of the earth. Oh God, do it here. Do the miraculous, supernatural here. We are desperate for it. Restore marriages that seem impossible to restore. Save people that seem impossible to be saved. Bring children home that seem like they're never coming back again. Bring us together in a way that the world can't comprehend and draws them to the gospel. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.